Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European If you enjoy what we do, there's really no better way to support us than by subscribing. To make that decision easier, we've got a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just a pound a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to our print and digital package for just two pounds a week. What do you get in the print and digital package for just two pounds a week? Unlimited digital access, plus our award-winning newspaper is delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. That's theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Coming up, normal politics has been suspended, uh, apparently in favour of abnormal politics, which is why we're about to let bankers pay themselves massive bonuses during a cost of living crisis. And also when we're, why we're about to start fracking again when even the new Chancellor of the Exchequer says it's pointless and dangerous. But what does he know? He's only the second most powerful person in the government. Of course, the last week has been dominated by the death of Queen Elizabeth and by the way that Britain has responded to it. I'll be joined by the new Europeans, Bonnie Greer, who's been commentating on all those events for American TV. We'll be getting Bonnie's unique take on what it's been like out there on the streets of London and what kind of King Charles will be and what Bonnie thinks this week tells us about the future of the monarchy and the future of Britain itself. And, of course, we'll be putting some more candidates into our Hall of Shame. But first, I do want to spend a moment on what we discuss here in normal times. Um, we'll be talking in detail next week about Labour and Europe, but it seems to me that while Labour's opposition can change the manager as many times as they like, the Conservative Party looks doomed to relegation because they can't stop scoring own goals. Here we are in essentially Liz Truss's pre-match warm-up and already they're lifting the ban on fracking. Now, all the polls show the public wants the ban on fracking to stay. It shows that fracking is the least trusted uh, means of getting new energy. Uh, the Tory seats where fracking might start up again are understandably scared and people are up in arms. And Labour have seized on Kwasi Kwarteng's statement in March of this year in which he said this, 
if we lifted the fracking moratorium tomorrow, it would take up to a decade to extract sufficient volumes and it would come at a high cost to our communities and to our precious countryside. No amount of shale gas from wells dotted across rural England would be enough to lower European prices anytime soon. And with the best will in the world, private companies are not going to sell the shale gas they produce to UK consumers at below the market price. That is a pretty convincing demolition of the government's case for fracking from the second most important person in the government. And then let's stay with quasi quoting and the idea that the cap on bankers' bonuses is to be lifted. The logic of this, of course, being that if you allow a free-for-all, it uh, it makes the City of London a more appealing place to do business, uh, and it makes financial companies think twice about moving some of all of their business to the EU, which, of course, has had the cap since 2014, the cap brought in, uh, because, obviously, uh, bankers' bonuses and irresponsible lending to generate those bonuses was seen as one of the causes of the financial crash. The idea of letting rich people get even richer during a cost of living crisis doesn't strike me as a vote winner, never mind the moral implications, uh, as if this lot ever consider moral implications. It's as if the government has heard that some people are choosing between heating and eating and decided that what they need to do is offer bankers a choice of heating up on a private island in the Maldives or eating gold-encrusted Wagyu beef at home. And on a purely pragmatic basis, how long will it be before any of the benefits from lifting the cap on bankers' bonuses manage to tick through in time for the next general election? How many, uh, how many months will it take for all that to come through and show a positive impact in taxation? Like fracking, it's an idea uh, that's been hanging around for a while, the idea of lifting the cap, and it's been rejected time after time because it's fundamentally unfair and what it says about your priorities, if you make it a priority, is awful. And yet, like no extra tax on the energy companies, no extra windfall tax, it's now policy for this government. And it's a government that seems to run out of ideas, scraping around in the bottom of their Britannia Unchained grab bag for things that make it look like they're still full of ideas. All of these things are own goals that are unpopular and easily exploitable by the opposition. And you wonder about what Liz Truss and Quasi Kwarteng are doing when they're not coming up with half-baked schemes and unforced errors like this. Maybe they're setting Centre Park's policy on the Queen's funeral. Now we're joined by the playwright, broadcaster and new European columnist Bonnie Greer. She's spent much of the last week as a pundit on American TV, explaining to the Americans just why it is that so many British people have been so moved by the death of Queen Elizabeth, and maybe also explaining just why it is that a significant section of British society has declined to join in. Bonnie, let's start with you, because um, in issue 308 of The New European, the one with the Queen on the cover, you've written about your family and the royals. Even your name has got a wrong connection. Tell, tell us more about that. Well, the thing is, you know, the minute I wrote this column, I thought, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm telling everybody how old I am. But th- there you go. I-, I was born 36 hours after Prince Charles. And there was a big kind of thing, I guess, uh, uh, when she was, when the queen, who was then Princess Elizabeth of Edinburgh, was carrying, that was about 48 hours, she was carrying uh, her child. There was a, a 
a contest in the hospital my mother was going to have me in. And my mother was, you know, a poor working class woman. Her, her, my dad and her lived in a, <clears throat> in a uh, shared house and they lived in one room of the house. So to be able to get a free, you know, years long nappies for their, uh, for their firstborn. I mean, that was, you know, they needed that. So my mother really hoped that she would be able to give birth at the same time as a princess. And she, you know, she really needed that to happen. Well, I didn't, it didn't happen. And um, I guess at the time, um, I mean, Charles was born in the evening of uh, November 14th, 1948, which I guess um, would be in Chicago time when I was born, would have been noon of the day. And I was born uh, six something in the morning on the 16th. So that was it. I lost out. My mother lost out. And she she said, well, you know, you you going to remember this guy. And uh, so she would sometimes give me little little birthday cupcakes or say, you know, this is for Prince Charles. And I, you know, I was a little girl, you know, I thought, okay. You know, I thought it was some fairy tale thing or something. I, I didn't know what he was. And um, then I think maybe I was eight or maybe seven and she gave me the little cupcake and I said, mama, who is this? And uh, cause I thought he was, I honestly thought he was in a fairy book cause his name was Prince Charles. So she showed me his pictures and he was a real person. He was a real little boy. And, you know, it didn't make any effect on me at all. And um, and she said, well, I named him after you. And I said, well, his name is Charles. She said, well, when he was a little boy, he was a baby, when he was getting ready to be born, well, when he was born, the press called him Bonnie Prince Charlie. And Mama said, I thought Bonnie was a really pretty name. A lot of, you know, women in those days named their children Bonnie. And I understand, Steve, that even Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall named their son Stephen Bonnie Prince, yeah, Charlie. That was like his his right. little nickname or it was in there because he was born a, like a month or two after me. So it was like a big, it was a big deal. So she, um, she got me sort of like, who is this guy? I, when I was a little kid, I didn't pay any attention. I was too little. But as I got to be a teenager and I saw that he wasn't a teenager, I mean, he was like this guy in a suit mm. who was the same age as me. And we were running around doing all the stuff you do in the 60s, you did in the 60s. And, you know, he was from England. He didn't have long hair or anything. I thought it was weird. I just couldn't figure this guy out. And um, because everything was coming out of England then, everything. And this guy was walking around in a three-piece suit uh, with a with an umbrella. I mean, the first time I'd ever heard the term uh, Palmy was uh, they had sent him to Australia for a year in the 60s, I think, when he was like 15 or 16 or something. And he was such like a little old man. He still wore a Savile Row suit. And he carried what they used to call a bumper shoot, like this umbrella, because that's what his class did. And somebody yelled out the window. I think he was crossing the schoolyard in his suit and his his bumper shoot. And they yelled out the window at him, you palmy bastard. And I thought, oh, what's a palm? You know, so he was always kind of on the fringes and the periphery. I, I didn't pay any attention to him toward the late 60s to the to maybe the end of the 70s 
when his uncle was assassinated because I was too busy being in the 60s and 70s. So I wasn't like looking at him, but I did notice that, um, you know, he became Prince of Wales with the tiniest crown on earth. And then I did notice that he was like sometimes showing up at discos and there were women running after him in beaches and stuff. And he played polo. And I did notice all that, but I didn't know the work he was doing. I didn't know anything that he did. So that that was it until the uh, he got married to Diana. I mean, that was just, you know, I just refused to um, like get involved with that. I mean, Americans were just sucked into that. That was hysteria. And, you know, following her and everything, I felt really sorry for her. And I remember at one point I was looking at their picture and I thought to myself, dude, I don't know what else you're doing. Uh, I don't know what else you're into, but this this lady is too young for you in every way and Ooh. you should not be doing this. But he did it. And it was doomed. Oh, yeah. um, doomed from the start. And, and I obvi- think it was. And, and obviously so. Um, I mean, let's, we can talk, let's talk more in a minute about what kind of king he's going to be. But I think the last few days have shown, really, haven't they, that, and, and probably to the surprise, and the, maybe not to the surprise, but to the frustration of many people, you know, I think the new European readers are probably, you know, less, uh, possibly slightly more Republican and less um, enamoured by the royals than, than mm. the population, although, you mm. know, many uh, many of our readers are, are, are very sad about, well, I think everybody's very sad about the, the, the end of the Oh, queen. sure, sure, she um, but you know, I think it, it's it surprised some people how overwhelmingly royalist we still are as a nation. I don't know if you saw that there's a, there was a poll out the other day which was taken after uh, the Queen's death, showing seventy five percent of British people thought the monarchy should continue. About a ten percent jump on um, up on when that question was asked back in May. Why do you think when, you know, the pageantry is a thing of wonder, but the, the privilege is, is increasingly indefensible? And, um, you know, we've, there are examples of modern monarchies all around Europe. Why do you think that is that we are so, that Britain is, are so, Britons are so enamoured by the monarchy still? Steve, you know, as, as, as an historian, amateur historian, I, I've come to, and I, it, it actually alarms me that the average British person doesn't know the history of the country. And if you if you do, you look and see that there have always been monarchs here. They're, they're very, I think there was maybe two to four years of a, of a, of a so-called uh, English Republic. It was, it was of a sort, there was no king, but there never has been anything like that here. There have always been kings. I mean, in fact, when I really get people angry is when I said, when I say, you you know, to get rid of a king, you sent for a king. I mean, that's James II and mm. brought over William of Orange. I mean, that's what happened. Nobody, you know, rose up in arms to get rid of James II. They sent for the another king. <laughs> so, so, I mean, part of it, uh, people have to face the fact that royalty seems to be at least for thousands of thousand years the before form of government because if it wasn't it would be gone now it's gotten you know less and less and less of course powerful there was a time when it literally was the power in terms of it had the army and all of that but it doesn't exist anymore 
So you, you have to ask, what is it? And I think people have to be very honest with themselves. This is a conservative country with a small C. I, I uh, even get stuff from people on my social media feed who I don't consider, um, you know, right wing or anything. One person wrote to me, and I will I I haven't got it in front of me, but he said, Well, we looked over the pond, we looked over the channel, we saw uh what they did to the to their king, and we didn't like that, thank you very much. And we thought, uh, and we saw the republic, we didn't like that very much, and we thought we'd keep what we have. And other people have said, Well, you know, if we had an elected uh president, suppose we got a president Trump. Mm -hmm. And I think what it is, Steve is underneath that there's a deep fear and dislike of democracy in this country. And I mean with a small d. Um, I think people believe that if you elect the guy next door to be your president or whatever, that this guy is on the take. That's actually what's going down here. So if he, if you instead rely on someone who inherits the position, at least you know that they're not going to steal from you. Uh, they don't actually need anything. I think it's a deep distrust of ordinary people. And that, that may sound really weird thing to say, but I think that's what it is. And when someone said to me, oh, we might get a President Trump, I said, well, that's, you know, I mean, I, I don't wish Trump on anybody, but he was elected. You know, now you can say uh, th that was a bad choice. It was a bad choice. He got elected. He was elected the president. I don't think people are into that here. And so that's why I think there will always be a monarchy. Um, I think that the monarchy is uh, very, very canny, canny and knows it. From about 100 years ago, they started marrying into the middle class. They stopped marrying princes and kings and princesses, which is what Victoria wanted them to do. And they started marrying uh, lesser nobility, like uh, the, the late queen's father did. The queen mother was uh, from a, a, a nobility of Scottish nobility. She wasn't royalty. So, and, and Charles uh, continued through tradition and uh, William has continued through tradition. So that's how they meet the moment, and they're very smart about that. If you notice also, uh, when the queen made her declaration of loyalty to the country when she was 21 years old, compare the accent that she wound up with. It mm. got more chilled out, chilled out, more chilled out, more chilled out. Because most people never heard the accent of the upper class because it, they never spoke to them, so they never heard what they sounded like. And she changed her accent. You've been schlepping to Green Park and other places mm. this week for, for. Are you working for CNN or? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and when you, I mean, clearly you've you've encountered a, a few, a lot of ordinary people there. Mm. What did what do the people you've spoken to in the last week say about why they're there? Why they feel a bond with? these people who are much wealthier than them and, and uh, you know, who, who they only see uh, occasions like these? Well, I've worked as comment. I haven't been a journalist, so I haven't gone amongst the people. But the people who, have, who I've seen who've talked to me, they're all really beautiful people. And they're there because they loved her. They're there because they feel 
uh, a personal loss. And I think on one hand, I've been maybe been saying some negative things about Britain, but one of the, the canny positive things about this country is that the British people, you guys seem to be able to channel your own personal feelings through this, what I call last of the silent movie stars. You've actually taken your own personal stuff and pasted it onto these people and filtered it through these people. So these people are there for themselves. Now, they'll say, I'm here for the queen, but they aren't. They're mourning the lockdown or they're mourning the loss of people in the lockdown. I lost somebody in in the pandemic. A lot of people have. Um, They haven't had a chance to just express that because the culture doesn't let you really do that. So so people have come out. They're able to cry in public. Uh, They're able to get sympathy from strangers. Uh, They're putting memorials up, you know, stuff like, you know, to the queen for your service. My late dad loved you. You know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And that's what people are doing with it. And it's a shame, really, Steve, because... The, the anti-monarchists and the Republicans, who I have total respect for, but they don't get it. And, yep. and they need to look at the way the country functions, and then they can make their breakthrough into what they they want to do, but they don't get it. And it's and it's and it's very important that they get it so they can appeal to people. Like I I mean, I could go on forever. Like, for instance, they uh people are screaming on my feed about. Wow, they pay income tax. Wow, they pay income tax. Well, they put the Privy concert on the blasted television live, which they never do. And you got to see, you got to see the the um, you know basically the Parliament giving permission for Charles to be king in exchange for uh, the right to use his land. This stuff is his. So he said, "I approve," and in in exchange for that. Uh, John Major said the the uh, the monarchy shouldn't pay tax because it lessens the institution. So nobody even that's not even taught. So that's a law. And then Charles uh, said, "I approve," which means you can use my land in exchange for money to run my household. Now that's as that's as plain as day. And but nobody watched it because they're not encouraged to watch how the country works. That Steve to me is tyrannical and it creates what happened in the United States on January 6th to 2021, because I grew up being taught civics. You couldn't graduate unless you knew how the constitution worked, who the president was. These are people who didn't know because they'd stopped teaching civics how the country works. So they attacked the Capitol. And because people here don't know how this country works, there's going to be trouble with the younger generations. I think. Yes, and and you can. I mean, you can see that that we we've got there's a poll in the in this week's issue, uh, which Peter Kellner has has, has done for us, um, which shows quite clearly that the younger people. I mean, they will their their views will change over time. I guess as our views all change over time, but younger people much less enthusiastic about the monarchy and much less enthusiastic about uh, about uh, King Charles. Um, is there a big difference between the crowds you've seen this week and, and the people you've talked to and the crowds 
at the funeral and before the funeral of Diana in in um, well, we're with twenty five years ago now, isn't it? Yes. Well, you know, I um, I don't even know how this happens to me, which is one of the things I wrote about. Uh, I get asked to cover royal stuff. Now, maybe it's because I add something bizarre to it. You know, I, I mean, I have no idea. But I wasn't asked to do Diana. I just showed up. Um, I just came on, on the mall like everybody else. That, Steve, was a hostile crowd. Those people were angry. Those people hated journalists. They were screaming at journalists. I know a friend of mine was there. He said they screamed at him. Um, there were people openly making the sign of the cross in this deeply Protestant right. country. Uh, there were people, um, as I was in France when it happened, and uh, I was with a bunch of friends, and the BBC had interviewed a couple of ladies, real strong East London Cockney women, who looked in the camera and said, she better get down here. Uh, she was the queen. And I remember turning to my French friends. I said, this is damn serious. Okay. This is serious. And obviously Tony Blair, somebody got the word to her and they got down here fast, broke that holiday. And then she pulled off what is called in the theater, a coup de théâtre. She, <laughs> she, I mean, she was incredible. She gave her address with her back to the mall. So you saw all the people, she was dressed in black. She said, I'm a grandmother. And then when Diana's coffin passed her, she saluted her, the queen. She bowed her head, the queen, the sovereign bows their head to no one. She did it to Diana. This was all what people needed to see. And then she came out and she walked around I mean, you know, as angry as those crowds were, somebody could have thrown a projectile at her. Nobody would have known. She walked right into the crowd. She shook hands. She took flowers. She talked. She walked right in, straight in. So that was that crowd. And then I was uh, asked by the BBC to cover the wedding of um, uh, William and Catherine. That crowd uh, was very strange. Um Again, you're royalists, again, mostly women, again, mostly white people. But they were there um, to check out Catherine and to check her out, literally. So I accidentally, and I'm, you know, I'm short, so I accidentally got in front of somebody. And I'm not blocking anybody's sightline. I got in front of some woman and she turned, she turned me around physically. She touched me, turned me around and said, and looked at me, and she said, I have been standing here for 24 hours. And I wasn't even blocking her views, Dave. I said, oh, excuse me, ma'am, I'm, I'm out of here. And I moved away. She had been standing there for 24 hours, standing, not sitting, she's been standing, maybe she slept. And this was the pavement, this wasn't the grass. To get a glimpse of William and Kate coming out uh, in I guess one of Charles's old, you know, beautiful vintage Aston Martins, William was driving that car with Catherine. They wanted to see her dress and her so they could do. I mean, I just was like, and that's how that crowd was. They were judging her and um, they were checking her out. And, and that was visceral. It was real. And then this crowd, is um, I was there last night to do um, do comment 
I finally got a chance to cross Westminster Bridge at, at 11. And I live not far from Westminster. I could crawl there practically in 30 minutes at no 40. And I couldn't find my way because it was all blackout. There's no planes, everything that you rerouted. I couldn't find my way to Westminster Bridge. I, I could feel the street underneath me, which I'd never felt before. I could feel how the street was built on hills. And I finally got across to Westminster, got to Westminster Bridge. People lined up from one end to the other to go into Westminster Hall. Steve, there wasn't a sound, not a sound. There were no cars, nobody was talking. The cops weren't talking. The security wasn't talking. The people weren't talking. There was no music. It was silent. And I had never seen anything like that before. It and it wasn't an eerie silence, though. It was a silence filled with people with their own interior thoughts. You could feel it. You could feel people thinking, you know, I wish my father was here or I wish my, you know, my dad, my mother was really into her. You could feel it. People were thinking. That was really moving. And the other moving thing for me, I forgot to say, was um, the amount of fathers out there with their children, young fathers out there with their kids, uh, the, guy, the fathers carrying the flowers, I mean, with baby strollers, uh, toddlers, walking with their kids, um, you know, through the grass and looking at the little shrines and talking to them. You know, I had never seen, uh, I was very moved by that to see this generation of men, young men who were just, you know, their fathers probably wouldn't have done it. Their grandfathers probably yeah. wouldn't have done something like this with the little kids. They had kids on their shoulders. They were carrying them on, you know, baby packs on their back, guys. And I just thought that was really beautiful. And, um, and, a, lot, and a lot of them. So that that's what that crowd was like. And of course, I then told you of the woman who actually from Cyprus, I got a picture of her. Yeah, she actually yeah. burst out of the crowd and grabbed his face and kissed him square on the cheek. We got to talk to her. And I said to her, lady, if you were in the United States, you would have been full of bullets. <laughs> I mean, it was just incredible. It's an incredible thing to see. And I'm looking now at the people in Westminster Hall who most of those people would never, they'll never be in that hall again. They can't get in there, so they'll never be in there. I've been in there a couple of times. You can see this crowd. Uh, they're mostly white. They're mostly um, probably my age or mm. a little bit younger. I'd say they're people between 50 to middle 80s. Um, and they stood there all night. They were standing. And they weren't, they weren't flagging. They were standing. The cues are the cues are, are, are quite in, incredible, and and clearly, you know, people will. Well, the longevity of the reign, the fact that the Queen's been a constant in in through pretty much all of our all of our lives. Um, me and and you know, it, it's it's likely that that's not going to be repeated again. So no. I'm kind of wondering where 
where we go from here then. I mean, let, King Charles, let, let's talk about King Charles then. Mm. Because in a sense, the genie's all out of the bottle a, a little bit with King Charles, isn't he? We we didn't know what the Queen thought about anything apart from the fact that she liked corgis. Um, we know what King Charles thinks about lots of things, and he's got quite strong views on them. Do you think how, how will he how will he rule? Will he will he still want to make those views clear in some way? Will he be told to stop making those views clear in some way? And and if he does clam up, what happens to those causes, those things that he believes in? Does William start talking about them? Does somebody else? Well, I'm looking at this crowd now as we're talking, and um, the crowd has become more diverse which is really nice to see. And people are, I was brought up Roman Catholic, so I'm watching a lot of genuflecting and cross, cross, you know, people yeah. making the sign of the cross to the, the former head of the Church of England, you know, um, and and everybody's waiting um, to let each individual cross in front on their own and do what they need to do in front of that, that coffin. Um, Charles even started cursing yesterday, which actually I thought was quite funny. I mean, some, he was signing something and the pen he messed was upset up. with his pen, yeah. Yeah, and he went off. And um, and Camilla, you could see their relationship, which I thought was really interesting. Obviously, she keeps him calm because she walked over to him and she calmed him down. She chilled him out. Um, already, we have uh, a very strong independence movement in Scotland. They're demanding another referendum. I, when the Tories are out, I would suspect they're going to get it. And I suspect they're going to leave um, the union. Um, I think that Northern Ireland, I've been in, uh, Ireland's very close to me and I've been to Belfast a couple of times. Sinn Féin uh, won that election, the assembly election because young people voted for Sinn Féin. Mm. So the Ulster unionists are not at the moment wanting to do power sharing with them, but their days are numbered. So when Sinn Féin gets there, they're going to call for a referendum and Northern Ireland is going to be gone. Um, as far as Wales is concerned, I love your name, Anglesey. As far as, as Wales is concerned, there's independence movement there. Yeah, and I think true. people are being aroused by the fact that, um, you know, this 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 title, Prince of Wales, is a war trophy, and it's a thousand year old war trophy. And uh, people are going to say, "Wait a minute, <clears throat> we don't like that." Uh, if there's going to be a Prince of Wales, uh, if there needs to be one, he needs to be from Wales. So, young people are talking about that, and nationalists are talking about that. So the country Charles is going to have is going to be what we call England. And who knows what England is, too? Mm -hmm. um, the people who voted for Brexit largely were from the north of England. And what Brexiteers are trying to do to sort of cover over the, the mess and catastrophe of this decision is they're trying to blame it on London-centric people like me, you know. All, London's always slapped around, but it's London, London, London. Um, and so they're trying to give uh, create a Northern identity, which I guess has to do with being English, which I guess being English means that there's no relationship with Europe other than whatever they want to for. I, I have no idea, but this is what Charles is facing. 
And and obviously, you know, obviously the well, numerous numerous countries from the Commonwealth. Canada. Oh yeah, we didn't get there. Yeah, yeah, they definitely. So we've not got there, but I mean, there's a there's a slight risk in there for, for Charles, isn't there? And I know you're going to be writing about this in in future, but you know, he's he's been in northern. Obviously, he's been in Scotland, um, but he's been in Northern Ireland this week. He's made William the, the Prince of Wales. He, he's very much being positioned as the the King of the Union, isn't he? And I'm not I'm not entirely sure that the Union really wants to wants to know as as you say um so so what happens what happens next do you think do you think he he reforms the royal family he tightens it up he makes it smaller more european more open even or does that just let risk letting light in on the the magic you know remember charles read history at cambridge so charles is charles is very serious about history you know, um, you know, the irony of him being King Charles uh, being proclaimed in a hall where his ancestor Charles the Charles I got his head, you know, was condemned to death. So that's Charles's life. That's how that rolled. You know, he always gets into weird things like that. Um, but he's a he's he's got two allegiances. He's got allegiance to his family and to his mother and to maintain that family, uh, that family's position in the United Kingdom. So he's like any aristocrat, you know, any guy, you know, like the Duke of Devonshire, like the Duke of Westminster, these people, their job is to keep that family going. And that's what they do. So Charles is a landowner in his own right. He um, is um, Duke of Lancaster. Uh, So, and they own, you know, tons of land that the government controls, but it's his land. So Charles is going to maintain that house because that is what his mother fought to do, even though she, in deference to her husband, named the family after him. So they're now Mountbatten-Windsor since 1960 instead of Windsor. So Charles is going to hold on to that family, and he's going to pass that family intact as much as he can to his son, and William is very much his father's son. He is no reformer. And he is going to pass that on to George. That's what's going to happen unless people make it happen. And if people don't understand their history, and a lot of young people have no idea how this country works, there's obstacles they would have to go through to change it, it's going to continue. Now, the country that he's going to be um, reigning over is going to be a very different place. But to be honest with you, Steve, I think he's prepared for that. I think he's cool with that. I think because he wants this family to endure, he's going to roll with whatever is happening. If people say, we want you not to come to part, you know, we don't want to come to the House of Lords to hear you proclaim the government anymore. We want the prime minister to do that. Charles will say, cool, I think he'll do it. Mm. And William will say it too. And that's how they stay in power because yeah. that's what the queen did. And she knew how to roll it back. And that's how they stay in control. And just before we let you go, I mean, I, I did want to end by by asking you about, I mean, she's she's a minor a minor player this week, but but she seems to be more considerably more popular among people, the people, than she is among 
newspaper editors and uh, and I'm sure you've been asked numerous times on CNN this week about Meghan Markle so so what are your thoughts on Meghan Markle and not so much her involvement this week but but the continual um sort of drumbeat against Meghan Markle by the media here well see this is what I call the soap opera of the royal family this is what yeah. I call the the silent movie actor. See, because remember, Diana was in that space. Yes. Okay. Diana was in that space and she went to the United States too. She wanted to settle there. That's where she was heading before she died. Um, so this is, uh, and, and before her, Princess Margaret was in that space. Princess Margaret was in that space in the 70s. And before her, Prince, uh, 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 the Duke of uh, Windsor, even though he was a Nazi, but nevertheless, before they found out that he was, he was in that space. And then before that, his uncle, uh, George's, uh, George the, the uh, sixth uncle, was in that space. The, and then before that, Prince Albert was in that space, the victorious consort. The royal family <laughs> always let somebody, Steve, be in that space. Because what happens is then you start to bifurcate the energy you keep everything sort of going i mean i wish somebody would just clue up megan about what's going on here the newspapers of course they're going to be against her. they were against diana they had a survey before she was killed where and i remember seeing it where they asked um you know diana wants to leave she's had enough and people basically send back well piss off that is what the newspapers do they sell papers that's their job. They got to find somebody to pick on. And that's how the royal family keeps going. And I, I kind of wish Meghan and Harry got that. I kind of wish they understood it uh, and stayed here and, and played these newspapers uh, because they can do it. But I guess I'm not them. And, and I guess it's too much of a strain. But this is uh, this is an old trope, old trope. And, it, and when when they're finished with Meghan, there'll be somebody else married into that family that's going to be the person they go on because it keeps the family going. It keeps the drama going. It keeps people caring about this family, looking at this family, paying attention to this family, and unfortunately, overlooking the real heroes of this family, like Princess Anne, who this is a 72-year-old woman who is standing vigil uh, all night before her mother's coffin uh, with her brothers who walk down a cobblestone street, who's riding around. And that this person to me is the person who's the hero of this story. Well, we'll be hearing a lot more about this uh, and seeing a lot more of your wonderful writing. Thank you so much. Thank you so Bonnie much, Steve. Uh, to read Bonnie's piece on King Charles III, please join us by subscribing at the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. And finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame, a special royal edition this week as we look at a few of our favourite pundits and how they have reacted to the sad news. Let's start with Dan Wharton of uh, GB News and Mail Online. He told his Twitter followers last week that he had been for some quiet reflection. Uh, as he puts it, some quiet reflection outside Buckingham Palace. Nothing to me says quiet reflection like having uh, one of your mates filming you uh, while you're laying flowers, as, as Dan Wharton did, quiet reflection uh, there. He did wear dark glasses uh, for his 
uh, videoed flower laying, a real mark of respect. And Dan Wharton uh, previously showed respect for the rules in 2016 when he was executive editor of The Sun, uh, and it broke a journalistic convention and ran a front page based on a private conversation that claimed that the Queen was in favour of Brexit. Real respect uh, shown there. Uh, Dan also showed respect for the rules in June when he wrote for the Daily Mail, uh, I'm beginning to doubt that Charles could become king without threatening the future of the monarchy. Uh, total respect. Uh, maybe Dan should uh, do some quiet reflection of his own. Um, Tom Harwood is also GB News. I did enjoy how indignant he was on August the 31st that Liz Truss was having to trail all the way up to Balmoral to officially become Prime Minister. Uh, Tom Harwood wrote on August the 31st, it's a little off of the palace to have not anticipated the end of the Tory leadership contest, which has been known for months, and to have arranged for Her Majesty to be at least in Windsor Castle next week. Uh, reminded... Uh, by some Twitter followers that the Queen was a very old lady, 96 years old. Uh, Tom Harwood showed his respect for the frail Queen by replying, what's the difference between sitting still on a seat at home and sitting still on a seat on a train? Uh, this Thursday, by the way, Tom wrote on Twitter, a bonus cap is not one of the policies uh, designed to help Poor. It is a design, a policy designed simply to bash the bankers. Uh, so, and in doing so, uh, to reduce the tax take. Uh, well done, everybody. This uh, proves that Tom Harwood is not just stupid about the rules; he's stupid about politics as well. Of course, Anne Widdicombe is in the Hall of Shame, and she writes this in her abysmal column in the Abysmal Daily Express. I met the Queen on several occasions, always briefly, but also always memorably. Once I was on crutches with a surgical boot, having broken my foot. Everyone else came up with the usual banalities, such as how awful, but Her Majesty had the mot juste. How tiresome. And I think that when the Queen saw Anne Widdicombe uh, approaching and said how tiresome, there is a very good chance that she wasn't talking about your surgical boot. But finally, in the Hall of Shame is Nigel Farage. And I present without comment these words of wisdom from the nicotine stained manfrog, dating from 2014 after Prince Charles criticised Russia's annexation of the Crimea and compared Vladimir Putin to Hitler. This is what Nigel Farage said in 2014. So prescient. There are times when it might be better for Prince Charles not to get involved in things like this. I know some people feel that way about Putin. I think there's a difference between Putin and Hitler. And the difference, I think, is that right from the start, Hitler was expansionist. And we haven't seen much evidence of that until now from Putin. And arguably, what's happened in Ukraine is because he's been poked with a stick by the rest of the world. Hmm. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Nigel Farage for being wrong about everything. And thanks to our producer, Eleanor Rongman-Rood. We have some changes coming up on this podcast. More about that next week. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just a pound a week for digital or two pounds a week for print and digital. That's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European podcast, and why, why on earth would you? 
then please subscribe. You can give us nice ratings and lovely reviews wherever that happens to. Please join our Facebook readers group. Please follow us on Twitter at The New European. If you like, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Sanglesey, at Sanglesey. It's S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.